Welcome to episode 42 of the Townopoly podcast, hosting your own developer conference. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and I'm joined by Brandon Corbin. Hi. Hey, Brandon. Hi. Hi. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the podcast tonight. Yeah, it's been it's been delightful. It has been a uh, the easiest podcast that we've ever had. Fill our readers in real quick what we've been going through so far tonight. Well, it's four thirty in the morning. It's four thirty in the morning right now. Um, and no, it, uh, yeah, basically everything's been broken, and now we're doing our, the first in studio, uh, kind of in studio. Yeah, kind you, of. You'll have to explain it because I'm not in the studio with now all the people that are there. Okay, so Tony Dewan is our guest tonight. Welcome, Tony. Hey guys. And he has gone through a lot to join us on the podcast tonight. What happened is we always have our guests just call in over Skype, and we do the podcast remotely. Even Brandon is back in his cave somewhere. I don't know where he lives exactly, (laughs) (laughs) and Skype's in. But tonight, Tony's connection was uh, 0.5 megabit upload, right, Tony? Thanks, Brighthouse. Yeah, Brighthouse is awesome. So he was not able to Skype in. So he uh, said, hey, you know what? I can uh, come to you. So he drove on over here. It was like 15, 20-minute drive, and here we are doing it out of my house. Originally, we thought we could do it from the bar room, but we had no splitter and didn't want to have an echo, blah, blah, blah. So now we are doing it in different parts of my house, which is kind of strange. So it's not quite an in-studio interview, but he's here in the house. He's in the basement. That's a pretty cool studio, actually. I'm sitting in a, in a child's recliner. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's pretty styling. It's a black leather recliner. It's comfortable, actually. I don't even is is it pleather? I don't even think that's. I have no pleather. way to even know that. I think it's. I think you're sitting in a in a rock and pleather chair. I I wouldn't doubt it. It's good. <laughs> so before we get started, I want to quickly mention the Townopoly job board. That's what makes all this possible. We have a lot of great companies posting jobs on here, and the one I want to feature today is a company out of Santa Barbara, California. Actually, it's a company named Entreport, and they're looking for PHP developers. So if you like doing PHP development and living in California, who wouldn't? This could be a cool job to check out. And we have other great jobs on the job board. So if you're interested, go check out the job board at townopley.com jobs. And with that, I will go to what you were drinking, Brandon. Please enlighten us. Well, so I've got um, the uh, uh, kangaroo wine. You know what I'm talking about? That cheap, not cheaper. It's cheap. Um, well, it's like yellowtail. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes. Thank you. It's it is yellowtail, and it's their Sauvignon Blanc. And I, because I had nothing to drink, and so I was scavengering around in the in the thing and found that, and that's what I'm drinking. And it's a meh. Yeah. Eh. Well, but you didn't have to pay much for the meh. Exactly. And I don't even know who bought it or how it ended up here because nobody else here drinks wine but me. But hey. <laughs> the wine fairy brought it. Hey. Uh, yes. Hopefully it wasn't uh, that overly friendly UPS guy. <laughs> did Did you open it tonight, though? I did. Because I remember I listened to the last one and you uh, you were drinking some really, really old wine. Oh, yeah. No, that stuff. That that was the last night of that. And um, that was that was not a good. That was not. Yeah, that wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> This, this one's this one's new. Good. All right. What are you drinking, Tony? Uh, I'm drinking scotch. So actually, I had two drinks when we started this thing, but now I'm down to one. I had a scotch and um, a homemade apple cider. Ooh. But I finished the cider, and I'm down to the scotch. I'm drinking the uh, the Balvaney or Balvaney, depending on how pretentious you are, uh, mm-hmm. is the distillery. It's the single barrel, um, 15 years. 
bottle one thirty nine. In case you were curious, I was uh, the hard the cider. I'm interested in that. Is that what you? Last time I saw you, you you were picking up some apples. Is that what you used? Yes, to cider. Yes, actually. So we had a bunch of apples left over from the conference, and uh, I made a couple of things. I made some applesauce. Um, I dehydrated like thirty apples, and then I made cider. And I still have like ten apples left. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But this is not hard cider. It's just regular. Cider. No, yeah, no. I just just boil the apples down with some spices and throw away the the leftovers. That sounds delicious. Yeah, that's pretty good. Cool. Well, I'm changing it up a little bit this episode, and because of the time of year, I usually like to break out the Baileys about now. Usually when it's nice and cold out, but it's like seventy <laughs> degrees out at the moment. But I still wanted to drink some Baileys, so. I poured myself some of that over ice, and it is very tasty. Good for you. Thank nice. you. And uh, with that, we will jump right into our topic, which this topic really came about because you recently hosted a developer conference, right, Tony? Yeah, I would say uh, maybe uh, it's designers and developers. Oh, ah, okay. But yeah, for sure. And it's called Rebuild. Right. And this is the second year that you've hosted it? Yeah, so last year, uh, July of 2011 was the was the first year. I moved it to October this year. So. Nice. And before we jump into what motivated you to do it, and then we're going to talk a lot about, for listeners out there who might be interested in doing a conference, small, medium, or large-style conference like this, some tips and resources and tricks along the way they can follow. Uh, before we do that, though, if you would, just give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you ended up in, the, in a computer-related field. Oh, interesting question. Um, so let's see. Uh, in high school, I got into uh, AV. We had video announcements, and I was doing the video announcements pretty much because that's where the best computers were, um, and I wanted to hang out with the best computers. Um, ended up in uh, informatics, uh, new media, um, and uh, did a little bit of everything there, so 3D, um, video, audio, uh, web uh, design development. I actually have a computer science uh, certificate, a minor. Um, and from there, just started working in the industry at local ad and marketing firms. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I started my consultancy doing um, kind of startups, startup focused web software. Um, nice. And you also host uh, IndieJS, a local meetup for JavaScripters. I do, yes. Which is very nice. I like going to that's the one meetup I actually go to every month. I really enjoy it. Oh good, yeah. And you're uh you're sponsoring right now actually. I so. am. Talonopoly is a sponsor of it and that that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Everyone should come out and uh eat appetizers on Talonopoly. Absolutely. Where where do you guys usually meet? Uh we're at Exact Target's um space in the Gibson building, which is um on Capitol. Yeah, Capitol in uh Michigan. Okay, cool. Yeah, which is great for me. Maybe 10 minutes down the road for me. So works out real nice. All right, with that, let's jump into, I'm really curious, where did, what inspired you? I mean, doing a conference, especially at the size that, and maybe talk for a minute about the size of the conference last year and this year, but what inspires you to decide to go through that amount of effort and pain that it must take to put on a conference like this? <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, wow. So let's see. Size, we're about 220 um, attendees, plus uh, this year we had nine speakers and five or six uh, helpers. So um, do the math. You know, it's about 235, uh, 240 people. Um, 
So it's not a small event for sure. Would you, um, is this a medium-sized conference or a large conference? Oof. Yeah, I don't know. Small to medium, I would say. Um, I mean, it depends on on what your what your bookends there are. Obviously, I mean, South by is is huge. Right. Um, if that's the big size, then we're we're tiny. Um, yeah, I wonder because that's an extremely large one. I wonder how big some other popular, well known like uh, like Ruby's conference gets, and, and those are yeah, probably what a thousand people. Probably something like that. So Exact Target just had their conference, and they had four thousand attendees. Wow. Um, if okay, that, so this is small to medium then, probably. Yeah, probably small actually. Okay. Um, feels like a lot, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. So, what what compels you to do this? Why did you want to start doing this, and what keeps you doing it? Um, so the story goes. Um, so do you guys know Justin Harder? Yep. I yeah. do not. Okay, so he's a local guy. runs uh, runs his own shop. He used to do a meetup called Refresh, uh, Refresh Indie. And, uh, we actually met in school and we, uh, worked on stuff together since then. And, uh, for some reason, I don't remember why we, we got together, um, December of 2010, maybe more like, uh, November of 2010. And he said, I'm trying to figure out what to do with refresh next year. It's a lot of work. I don't really want to keep doing it. I'm going to switch to every other month. And I said, um, okay, what do you have going on? And he explained a couple of things and he said, I'm thinking about doing a conference and, in uh july or august and i said that's interesting um uh my team and i have been talking about doing a conference for a while seems like it'd be really fun and i had just uh committed um myself to pulling triggers just saying yes to things and so i was like screw it we'll do it and uh you know never looked back so the did you you know what you were getting into looking back on it now no idea i had no idea (laughs) Um, yeah, it's the, uh, the, I think the biggest time commitment that's ever come out of a screw it, uh, in my life. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pretty big time commitment. I think probably the first year, um, between the both of us, we probably had, uh, over a thousand hours, I would say. Wow. And how many months ahead of time do you need to start working on it? Um, we plan the first year in like seven or eight months. Um, probably about the same this year, actually. We actually maybe we started about nine months uh, early, um, even maybe ten months. But then I took a few months off in the middle there. So I'm, I'm probably jumping ahead here in the structure of things. But how how easy or was it easy to attract more people the second year? Does the growth kind of take on some momentum year by year with it? We actually had our attendance was a bit lower this year than last year. Um, so I have uh, no idea what's going on. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we you we do still, a lot to get the word out, right? Uh, we 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 try. We actually don't do much in the way of marketing, um, other than uh, we do a lot of Twitter, and then we have email addresses, obviously. Um, and then I tried this year. I did a bunch of stuff. I did Talentopoly posts, and I did LinkedIn posts, and um, tried a bit harder this year. So maybe maybe the lesson is don't try as hard. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so speakers. How many speakers did you have the first year? We had seven last year, and we had nine this year. And uh, this is the this is one of the most important aspects of the conference, right? This is what people are coming for. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of different ways that you can look at a conference. Um, you know, there's there's developer conferences, like language focused conferences that are kind of big, and they take uh, 
uh, people's um, like ideas for for talks. I forget what that's called, but we'd like a call for call for talks. Right. Um, my opinion, uh, our opinion on what a what a good conference is is um, single track curated. We pick all the speakers, we put them in a certain order, um, and it's a one day affair. That's kind of what we've envisioned is the sweet spot of a conference. Um, so in that, in that vision, speakers are everything you live and die by the speakers. No, no question in my mind. Did you know a fair portion of the speakers that ended up speaking at the conferences? No, I've, I've known none of them before they spoke. What? Well, like give us a flavor for some of the speakers you've had. Uh, yeah. So last year we had, uh, Ethan Marcotte, who's the guy that, that wrote the, uh, the book on responsive web design. He literally actually wrote the book on responsive web design. Um, we had Yehuda Katz, who's one of the guys that works on rails and jQuery. He's a core team member of both. Um, let's see, we had Leah Culver, um, who's done a few startups, uh, in her life. Um, Pounce was her big one a few years ago. She recently did Convor. Um, Brad Calbo is a um, cartoonist. He does the Brads, which is a webcomic. Um, and we had Nevin, who uh, works for Panic. If, you, if anybody's used... Um, Transmit, is it? Yeah, that's their big app. So he's a UI designer for, for Panic, and then he does iOS 8-bit iOS games on the side. Um, so how did you get... These all sound like big names. Yeah. I mean, how do you approach them? How, like, Were you intimidated at first? Did you think maybe I'll go after speakers I think I can get, or did you just start out saying I'm going to go for the big names? Um, you know, it's it's a trial and error thing. Especially last year, we um, it was all cold emailing. I didn't really, I, like I said, I didn't know anyone ahead of time. Uh, we kind of I built a list of who are the awesome people that I read blogs or follow on Twitter or have done really cool things, and I just started, started kind of working through the list um, and. That's really that's really all there is is to it. I mean, it's it's finding contact information, um, sometimes guessing contact information. Last year, I had to guess one of the speakers' emails because it wasn't public anywhere. Hmm. Are they generally receptive to these emails, or do you get a lot more rejections than nice responses? It's all over the map. Yeah, it just depends. Um, this year was actually harder. Um, we had, you know, it's there's you get all kinds of reactions. You get uh, a lot of like in people ignoring you, you get a lot of um, negative responses. Um, it's it's all over the map, for sure. But it, so when you get these negative responses, it didn't it didn't make you less likely to continue e- cold emailing people. You just kind of like oh, you know, I expected this and move on. Or what was your response when you get this stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's there's really only one way to handle it, which is to be gracious. Um, you know, thanks, and maybe next year. That's basically it. And in this initial email, how would you bring, did you touch on the subject of money and like, Hey, we'll pay you for this. Or do you just let the conversation go to that? So we talk, uh, we, we tried a bunch of different kinds of emails and, um, I've, I tend to find short and sweet, um, is the most effective. Uh, we do start off by saying we take really great care of our speakers. So we, um, we pay for them to get here, and, and we drive them around. We pay for everything while they're here. We we do our best to uh, to take care of them. So we make that clear up front for sure. Um, a lot of conferences um, apparently don't do that. Um, 
even even as much as I've heard of people that are speaking at conferences and they pay their way to get there and they pay to stay and it's uh I can't imagine that actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be a really big conference if you're going to try to pull that off. Yeah, I can't imagine. Cool. So what is it you were saying earlier about having an opinion about the conference and is that, is that like a vision for the conference that you want to have and then you stick to it? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, vision's a good word. I think um, when we started, it, the question that I kind of had in my mind is what is the best conference that I would want to go to and then how do I make that happen? So the very first question um, was was price point. Uh, the, the big motivator for us was if I want to see world-class speakers uh, in our field, I have to go far away. The closest is Chicago, but usually you're talking L.A. or New York or Boston or um, Orlando, and you're going to pay seven, eight, nine hundred dollars for a ticket, plus to get there, plus to stay there, several thousand dollars before you um, before you're done. Um, and my my question was, can we do something local but still have those world class speakers and still keep the price point uh, where I would consider it reasonable? So. Um, last year, our, our main price point was one forty nine. Um, this year, our, our regular ticket price was one ninety nine, but most people ended up in the one forty nine. The way that we structured things, um, and that's kind of really important to us because I don't want to put on an event that I wouldn't pay to go to. Um, and so that everything kind of f- flowed from that. But but there's also lots of things about the vision or the opinion that um, that we have. You know, the where it's held um, and. Uh, how we structure breaks and how we set up the space and all of those things are just um, opinions that we have. It's it's really, frankly, it's experience design on some level. It's saying what what would be the best experience as an attendee or as a speaker, and and then how do we make that happen? So, is how much of that is based off of you going to other conferences and taking notes of what you liked or didn't like? I mean, have you been to that many conferences? So that's a funny question. I, I guess this is going to be of public record, um, which is a little a little scary. But <laughs> okay, now um, when we did the first year, I had actually never been to a conference before. That, that, that might be a good thing, right? That was how I sold it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, so not like a conference is a hard thing to understand what happens. You know, I've seen lots of conference videos and was fully aware of of the process and. Um, but yeah, I've never been to a, a web conference before. I think that's really great that that you're willing to admit that because there probably is somebody listening to this podcast that maybe is interested in doing this sort of thing and, and is in the same situation where they haven't been to a conference. And you're basically here saying you don't have to have been to a bunch of other conferences to be able to host your own. I guess not. <laughs> so I think that's great. There's no reason that you have to copy what other people are doing and you can kind of form your opinion, like you said, and then go and, and create a conference in your own vision and see it, what works and change it from year to year, right? Yeah, and I, I don't think copying is, is really even a good idea, frankly. I mean, one of the problems that we're going to see or that we're seeing is that there's a lot of small conferences. There's more and more conferences every year, um, small regional conferences. And one word for that is is competition. Um, but I think what that means is you really have to have that, like, that personality, that opinion, and uh, and stick by that. If you kind of try to copy what other people do, it's just not going to. Um, I don't know. Authenticity, I think, is is important in in, in all things, frankly. 
And this is just another another instance of that. You said that the venue is really an important aspect for you guys. How important do you think venue is overall now that you've hosted two of them? And then second question is, how did you choose your venue? Yeah, so I think venue is really important for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is tone and the other is budget. Um, so traditionally, um, conferences are held at like hotels or conference centers, right? That's why they're called conference centers. Um, and you're going to pay like lots and lots of money. Um, we got a quote last year uh, and it was more than our entire budget um, would have been, which includes covering all speaker costs, all, um, like all of the other costs, including any time that, you know, we would spend. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's an order of magnitude more expensive to have it at a traditional venue and you get, um, what you get with that is not the most interesting place to be. Um, you get crappy Wi-Fi. um, you get, uh, you know, parking is usually good, but that's, that's about it. You also often get like forced into using specific catering companies. Most traditional venue uh, locations uh, have deals with catering companies and you have to use those, which means you pay lots of money and it's usually not that great. This sounds like a wedding reception being planned now. Yeah, but <laughs> it is actually, it's very much like a wedding um, for sure. So how did you end up picking the venue that you, or how, did you use the same venue every year? So far we have, yeah. So the last two years we've been at the Harrison Center for the Arts, um, which is at 16th and Delaware downtown. Um, I'm not sure how I first came across the venue, but I was looking for interesting venues and toured a few, and um, it just seemed like a really good fit. It's it's cool because it's an old it's an old church and church school and gym that's uh, used half like the school is now mostly artist studios, and then the church is part time a, a church as well. Uh, but it's kind of a fun place because it's an old building and it's also full of new art, which I think is fun for, you know, web designers and developers kind of walk around and um, and see things that you maybe don't normally see at a at a conference. Um, yeah, I remember you had a picture of it up on the rebuild site as the background. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. For this year. And it looked really neat. I, I love that type of different style to it versus the highly carpeted you know, crappy carpet of uh, like a Marriott conference room or something. Yeah, that stuff's boring. I can't, yeah. I wouldn't want to go to that conference. So I'm never going to plan that conference. What, so. what were your chairs like? This is such a random question. <laughs> what were the chairs like at the conference? This is huge, actually. You wouldn't believe how important chairs are. And this is something that I like stress about. So I'm, I'm a details kind of guy. And I stress about all of the details for this thing. Um, we actually use the chair the center has, and they are folding chairs that have a little bit of padding on them. And if there's one thing that we consistently have heard both years, it's that, you know, people say, oh, we had a great time. Speakers were awesome. This is great. But these chairs are not that great on my butt. And we have to kind of deal with that. Um, we looked into renting chairs. And frankly, like, the chairs you can rent are worse. They're like crappy um, plastic, um, like, wedding chairs. Oh, man. Um, or, or you get the, um, like really thick, like moose lodge kind of, um, they're not folding, but they're metal chairs and they have like a really thick, thick, uh, seat to them. And those are just ugly and gross and expensive and hard. And there's really, it's, it's hard if that's the one downside to an alternative venue is, is chairs. And, you know, we have eight full hours of content and it's by the end of it, it is, um, 
it's not the best seating arrangement for sure. Yeah, it just came to mind when I was thinking Marriott conference room and those conference rooms always have the most unpadded chairs. After even two hours, I'm done. I can't sit on them anymore. Yeah, I'm I'm um, on the hunt for we're actually so we've talked about uh, with this company, with the conference company doing uh, more events throughout the year. Um, This is pretty much the only thing we do. And and I'd like to start doing like workshops and other things. so um, I'm looking for other venues, and I'm kind of trying to find uh, like traditional, more traditional auditorium venues that are still kind of maybe interesting. Um, I know the Indianapolis Art Center is really cool. Uh, that would be cool. Nobody can steal that. I'm, that's mine, by the way. Guys. <laughs> uh, they have a really cool auditorium in there. It's kind of small, but it's it's a cool place. So nice. Yeah, so- I think. I think venue is really important, actually, because it completely sets the tone. Um, I think everything, the the one constant um, that you have with a conference like this is there's a person up on a stage and they have slides and they're talking to you and they're changing the slides, right? So um, you kind of have leeway with everything else, and everything else sets the tone and, and creates the experience. So, gotcha. Okay, so we've talked a little bit. We've kind of skirted around the issue of costs, and I don't know what you're comfortable sharing as far as costs go, but I think there would be people listening who are interested in knowing, well, how much how much can I make off of it? That maybe that's part of their motivation, but more so, how much do all of these things cost? Is it is it really risky? Am I am I going to possibly lose money trying to do this conference? What are some of the ways that? What are some of the things that create the cost? What is the most expensive things? So uh, let's unpack that a little bit. A couple of the questions. It's um, it can be hard to make money. I've talked to a few other people that run similar events, and um, you know we we do okay. We're profitable, but um, that's not always the case for sure. This is completely a labor of love. If you want to get into this to make money, then you should find something else to do um, because you're not going to make money. When you make money is when you're somebody like Carsonified, and they do you know. 10 huge events a year and and that's awesome except you also end up with ticket prices of six or seven or eight hundred dollars um and that's a totally different kind of audience and you know we that's not a regional conference anymore and that's really what we want to be is is regional so we have attendees from all of the surrounding states and and a few farther away but it's it's otherwise very regional and, and that's important to us um big cost points um so we believe uh, strongly that, like I said before, you live and die by your speakers. And so we treat our speakers the best that we can. And so that becomes a kind of a major cost center. But that's also the whole reason that anybody is there. So the cost center is kind of the wrong word. I guess within the budget, it's a large percentage. Um, what other things are large in there? Are you providing breakfast or lunch? So we provide lunch, um, and lunch can be expensive, especially if you use traditional catering. Um, we don't, so we have food trucks for lunch, um, and generally, actually, the people enjoy that, and it's uh, it saves us a bit of money. Um, so you're looking at maybe a few thousand, something like that. Yeah, a couple grand. So I think our average for for lunch was. Um, like 11, 10 or 11 bucks a head, maybe. Um, That's really good. Where, yeah, I mean, with catering, you're looking at 20 or more, 30. 
uh, for less quality. I mean, the thing about the food truck guys is they care. Like they, uh, especially right now in Indy, the, the really good ones, um, these guys are passionate about what they're making and how they're making it and, and how they serve it. So you get a much higher quality product than you do out of, you know, box lunches from XYZ catering. Yeah, and there's it seems like there would be a real fun element to that too, a little more excitement than just, oh, here, they're going to bring in the lunch now and set it up on the back table. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other Another big cost center is equipment rental. Um, since we're on a non-traditional venue, we got to bring in everything. We got to bring in screens. We got to bring in, um, projectors and stage and, uh, sound system and mics and, and all of that stuff is, uh, is, uh, expensive for sure. Sounds time consuming to organize all that too and have all the discussions with all the different people. Yeah. So we worked with two different vendors, one vendor last year and a new vendor this year, um, so luckily, we pretty much had one point of contact both years for for that. So the, the AV stuff was and and the equipment stuff was like one person, and it was a couple of meetings to say here's what we want, and then on the day of or the day before, I guess the setup day, there's a bunch of um, talking and hand wringing and and directing and and everything uh, to get things set up. But um, definitely don't take that on by yourself. Let the experts be the experts. Pay for that. Did you guys do videotaping? We did. So last year we actually we called in a favor and we had kind of a one camera in the back of the of the auditorium and um, you can see the videos are online from last year. They're not super great. This year uh, I had the goal of fixing the things that were not as good last year and that was one of them. And so we had we hired a team. We had a four camera setup, including a jib and um, like an up close. Um, guy or a, a guy in the in the crowd and stuff so it was it was pretty intense i'm pretty sure the videos are going to be awesome this year are those going to be free or are you selling those i would give those away that's marketing that's um, awesome yeah for sure because i know some other conferences will charge for that was we actually we actually write it into our contract that we will not charge for it um the contract we have with the speakers excellent so and you never considered charging for it that was from day one you knew you'd give it out for free yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, that's how you get the word out about your conference. But also that makes the speakers look good, you know, when they when they have a great time and they uh, do do a great uh, talk and they can share that. That's awesome for them, which is just awesome for you, too, you know, because they will share that. And, and we have people that um, as our speakers that have a big following and, you know, if they're tweeting about us before they talk, but then also afterwards when they, when their video is up and they think, Oh man, that's a great video. That just makes us look good. Nice. So you mentioned a clever idea of having the food truck do your catering because they care more about the food and they'll maybe do a little bit cheaper. What are some other clever ideas for limiting costs? Uh, so alternative venue is a good way to limit cost. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard. So uh, clever ideas in general, I think um, focusing on details is important. So one thing that we do that we're really, really proud of is our badges, um, which I'm actually working right now to turn into a product. Uh, So if anybody listening is doing a conference, get in touch because I will do your badges for you and they'll be awesome. Uh, But uh, we spent a bunch of time on the badges. We actually custom design them and get them printed and and die cut. And the way that they work is 
a front and back is your name and, and your company or whatever. But then um, it's it's folded over, and if you unfold it in front of you, you can see the schedule for the day. Um, so rather than having a package, you're going to throw away plastic and, and have paper that you're going to lose. All you got to do is look down and you can see who's talking when and when lunch is and when the breaks are. and all that, that is brilliant. I love that idea. Um, so, I mean, that that was crazy expensive, relatively speaking. So most conferences, you know, like they'll print them themselves or, you know, they'll use the plastic badge holders and, you know, they'll spend, who knows, a buck, maybe 75 cents a badge. Um, ours are like $3 a badge. So, um but, but that's huge. I mean, that's a touch point. That's an experience point that uh, people walk away with and they take, they take pictures of it and they keep it. And uh, that's, you know, that's marketing. That's free marketing. When you're talking to these speakers and you said you really give them the VIP treatment, you guys are ferrying them around and taking care of them. What, what all does that entail? What types of things do you have to plan ahead of time when the speakers are coming in? Um, <clears throat> so you got to make sure flights um, makes sense, which is a big, big hassle. That's Justin is the man on that. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Um, we would be a massive failure if, if I had to do that. Uh, cause you have to figure out, uh, one, because we're in Indianapolis, there's almost no direct flights. So you have to deal with the speakers coming from California. You know, they don't want to leave at 6am, but we need them here before 6pm. And how do we make that happen? And how do we get them here so that one of us can be there to pick them up. Um, that's hugely important for us. The, we want the very first touch point that they have, the very first experience of Indianapolis and of Rebuild, of us with our T-shirts on that say Rebuild, smiling at them at the baggage claim. Um, and, it's, and it's one of us as in one of the organizers, not just one of our volunteers. It's We're, we're there um, because they know who we are and um, you know that's, we're who they've been talking to. And we started off right with that. So, so one of those, those logistical things is, you know, well, these three speakers come in at this time. So we have to have a few of them wait around for a few minutes so we can take all three at once. And um, those details are, are pretty hard, especially considering during that same time you're setting up the venue. Um, so uh, if there's one thing I can tell anyone who wants to do anything close to an event like this is have lots and lots of help. Um, you certainly, I, it's like a startup, right? Like, uh, there's a reason, um, incubators like Y Combinator don't invest in one person teams very often. Um, two and three person teams is, is really the sweet spot. Same thing here. Um, you just can't, you'd be crazy to do it alone. Um, I think anyway. Do you have volunteers the day of to help you set up? Yeah. So the day before for setup, we had, um, three or four people help out. And the day of, we had about five people, well, maybe, maybe seven people throughout the day. Some people came and, and went and, and that kind of thing. But, um, I definitely call in favors every year. All right. Sponsorships. It's another potential way to make money off the conference, help make it profitable. What have you learned in trying to get sponsorships for rebuild? Uh, sponsorships are really, really hard. Um, I'm, I'm not good at them. Maybe I, I don't know. I think, it, it's a hard sell sometimes because a lot of people are looking for specific metrics and you just can't do that here. You know, I can't, I can't guarantee you a certain amount of traffic to your web service. Right. So oftentimes the conference sponsorship is much more about like mind share. It's about, um, being a, a uh, support to the community. 
Um, you know, we, the vast majority of our revenue comes from ticket sales, which I think is the opposite of a lot of other conferences. Um, we treat sponsorship as kind of icing, basically. Um, we're also very particular about our sponsors. So I, I will frankly um, not take a sponsorship if it's not something that I um, like support or would use. You know, So I actually seek out the tools that I use that I really enjoy and want other people to use. I find those people and try to make them sponsor us. So that, that's how Harvest became a sponsor. I use, I use the crap out of Harvest. I've been using it for years. And... I convinced them that, um, you know, it was a good idea to support us because there's lots of people that, uh, should be using harvest that maybe aren't. Um, and you know, that's, that came completely because I, uh, I'm a big fan and user of harvest. What are some other sponsors you've had? Uh, so let's see, we have, we have exact target, um, harvest, um, GitHub was a sponsor this year, which was awesome. And then small box. So we only had the four sponsors. And frankly, I don't ever really want to have more than four to six sponsors. Um, it becomes a, it creates a different kind of tone in my mind, and it's just kind of less valuable for those sponsors. Um, the GitHub sponsorship was exciting because it was a, it was a bit last minute, and uh, we ended up. So Zach Holman was one of our speakers this year, and he works at GitHub. And then Mark Otto um, is another speaker. He was at Twitter, but between when we signed him and the conference, he actually went to GitHub. So I. Oh. Um, use that. And then I also had the contact to GitHub because of IndieJS. We had a drink up a couple months ago with them. And I was really, really excited to get them on board because I, I use GitHub all the time, every day. It's a huge part of my business and I love to support them. So Yeah, they seem really great about sponsoring <clears throat> the conferences. They sponsor uh, ValioCon, which is the conference that I've been to uh, twice now. And just getting out there in the community. And it, so it makes me wonder if going after these larger companies like a GitHub or Pivotal or a New Relic, because theoretically they have larger, large enough marketing budgets that they should be able to have something to, you know, sponsor your conference with. Do you go after some of those people? Have you thought about going after the larger companies? Yeah, I actually talked to, to the Pivotal guys a little bit this year. Um, it didn't end up working out. You know, you got to figure out what people want. So GitHub is awesome because they like to buy people booze. Um, if you want to sponsor a party, um, GitHub is is a good person to talk to. As long as you're like in the target audience, obviously a a conference of event planners probably isn't going to get a GitHub sponsorship. Mm-hmm. For for people that um, that are doing web software, people uh, using version control, GitHub is is a great one. Um, but yeah, you got to you got to figure out you know what they're going to get out of it and 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 what they would want to get out of it. That's huge. All right, so we've covered the you you should find somebody else to do it with you, or you you're going to die a slow, painful death trying to do a conference all by yourself. Right. You talked a little bit about marketing, where you went on to Twitter, you went on to LinkedIn. Are there other marketing things that you want to mention? Um, I wish. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to get hear ideas. We, we do. Okay. Obviously we, we basically sell out. Um, we have every year, which we're really thankful for and we haven't really done much marketing. So I, I don't know. Um, other than we just do Twitter and send some emails. I think we sent four emails to our list this year. So, so what is it that keeps you going? Are you going to do this again next year? Yes. So here's my metric. If I don't lose money and I have a good time, I'll keep doing it. Um, 
and that continues to be the case. So that's I'll keep doing it. Um, it's it's like so fun to do the day of because it's a completely different kind of experience. I know you guys are both uh, do web development. <clears throat> I know Brandon, you do a bit of design too, and it's a completely different experience. You know, this kind of event, it's um, I don't know, it's a totally different way to like earn a living. Um, and I love it. I, I wouldn't want to do it every day. I would probably, uh, go crazy. I like to be in my cave, but you know, for, for one or two days a year to get out and, and be in charge of things and making sure things are happening. And, um, it's, it's so much fun. The other thing that that's really cool for me is, um, frankly, all of the speakers are people that I now have a personal connection to and, you know, they will take my email or take my call. You know, if I'm in, uh, if I'm in Florida, you know, I can hit up Jason Van Lu and, and get some coffee. Or if I'm in, um, in Philly, you know, Jen Lucas will, will meet meet up with me, and and that's huge for me. You know, that's that's awesome. I love that, and uh, you know, it just takes thousands of hours, and uh, <laughs> that's all. Well, I unfortunately I didn't make it out to rebuild this year, and I, it killed me not to be able to go. I'm definitely gonna get a ticket next year, but I wanted to take a moment just to. Thank you, as far as the Indianapolis community goes, for putting something like this on. And the love, the quality of speakers you're bringing in to the area is just amazing. And it's awesome. It's inspiring to me to see somebody going through the effort to put on a conference like this that normally, like you said, you've got to go to one of the coasts or to a major city to go to something like this. And we have it in our backyard in Indianapolis. So thank you for doing that. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. That. Uh... That makes it worth it for sure. The, all the all the positive feedback we get um, is is hugely motivating. Well, and with that, we will move on to talk about five great links that were posted on Talentopoly over the last two weeks. And our first link is Fuel UX, a lightweight library that extends Twitter Bootstrap. This is made by the fine folks over at Exact Target. Getting a lot of airtime on the podcast. <laughs> But this is actually a fellow IndieJS uh, guy, who, yeah. Steven, who goes to IndieJS, and his and some other guys at Exact Target put this together. And what it is is you've got some clean and lightweight UE controls in here, like a combo box, a little search field, the data grid. If you look at nothing else, when you, if you look at Fuel UX, look at the data grid. This makes it worth it right here. It's basically if you're familiar with jQuery data tables. It's jQuery data tables for Twitter Bootstrap. And that means you can search within a table. Uh, so if it's a whole bunch of names, you can type in the last name, and it's going to filter out everybody who doesn't have that last name. You can control how many uh, results per page. It's got the pagination built in. It goes a little further. Twitter Bootstrap gives you basic just table styles. This actually makes the table functional as a nice data grid. So that's really cool. Uh, Spinner. So just a, a simple spinner form element. So you can have an up and down arrow for a numeric element. And then also the pillbox, which I didn't quite, the pillbox struck me as a little strange. It's, you click the pillbox buttons and then it's putting what look like tags into the text area. I wasn't completely understanding what, what's going on there or when you would use that. Well, if you come to the January NDJS, you can ask the guy that made it because he'll be presenting. Nice. I, w I will definitely do that. <laughs> so, Brandon, do you have any thoughts on that or should we introduce link number two? Well, let's go to link number two because you probably won't hear me. 
I will let you introduce the title of it, and we'll take it from there. Oh, you suck. I want to hear you pronounce this. Menimo. Menimo. It's Menimo. It's a. It's it's Menimo better than uh, any Android emulator out there. (laughs) And what is this? What my my Menimo is a uh, is an is an Android emulator that's better than the other Android emulators apparently, <laughs> um, but it gives you the ability to. Oh, it looks like I can launch it straight from my uh, my browser, which I'm doing right yeah. now, and we'll see if it works. Yep, and you can launch an app with it. You can actually launch your own app. So this would be great for testing purposes. They have all these different resolutions and DPIs, and it actually is pretty fast. This is kind of crazy. Yeah, you've got Android in your browser. They said in the beginning when this first uh, got on Hacker News, of course it got tons of traffic, and it was booting up the new images really slowly, the new emulators. So everybody was saying, oh, it's so slow. Just run an emulator locally. The problem is the stock emulator, and I don't do Android development, but from what I hear, the stock emulator is really, really slow. There is another emulator that you can play with, that you can run locally. But if you want to test on a whole bunch of different devices, it would be neat to kick off. A whole, you know, I don't know what the constraints are here, but if you can kick off like 16 or 30 of these things and just do some screenshots, it kind of reminds me of those services that let you test your web page in a multitude of uh, different browsers and browser versions and just send you screenshots so you can see how it's rendering in them. What kind of black magic is this? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's it. You know, it looks like something like no VNC. Have any of you either heard of it? And and it looks like it's the canvas. Um, I think the, it is something very similar to that. This or is, is using that. This is kind of crazy. But yeah, this is actually Android running. So you said it's a canvas under there? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a canvas, and um, but I'm I I don't know what no NVC is. Oh. NVC, GitHub, baby. One, maybe. Online, no NVC client. Well, hmm. I'll be damned. They are actually booting up these OSs on demand. So when you click launch, it is starting it up for you, spinning up an instance. Yeah, na- native web sockets. <laughs> wow, this is kind of cool. It's definitely not as fast as if you run locally. No, 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 but that's, be that's besides reasons. the point. There could be reasons why you'd still want to use this. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I like it. All right, link number three, the top 10 alternatives to Google AdWords. Do you do AdWords advertising, Brandon? No, not anymore. I haven't for a while. I mean, I'll probably start picking it back up here in the next couple months uh, for a couple other projects, but I really don't do any advertising for like the last two years. What, What made you stop? Um, just, it, I, I didn't have a need for it for the projects that I was working on. I just didn't want to spend the money on it, honestly. Well, and the, this article really is built around the fact that Google AdWords has become so competitive that the, the bids are really high now, well over a dollar or multiple dollars for the popular keywords. So it may be cost prohibitive for people like us to advertise on there, but these are 10 alternatives, some of which look pretty sketchy some look (laughs) i would actually try them i might do the whole the whole webs i mean no 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 offense to ross walker um but it looks like he he took over uh after the uh craigslist designer (laughs) it doesn't yeah it looks a little sketchy too and at first i would have just 
never read through this. But, you know, I figured I'd give this a try, see what type of information is in here. And then I went and clicked on some of these. And, like, Contera is one of the ones that impressed me. Contera's website, and he talks about it slightly. I think he's actually copying and pasting their marketing material into his descriptions on his blog post here. Yeah. Some of them are written in the first person as the company. But and, and there's not a lot of differentiation from one to the next the way he writes it. But then clicking through to some of these, they do look fairly premium. And I know my own personal experience that I haven't done much with AdWords, but I have messed around with InfluAds, and that's InfluAds.com. And I've also looked at buy-sell ads. I used to use an ad network called Yogurt, and then it got uh, bought up and is part Mm -hmm. of buy-sell ads now. But those little niche networks, especially when they're first getting started, can be amazing, the amount of coverage and, and impressions you can get for a very low dollar amount that it, it might be worth your time to look into some of these and, and pick up some of these rocks and look under them and see if there's a little ad network that you can get in on in the beginning. Because yeah. just to give you an idea of my experience, I was paying about 150 bucks. In the in, this is two years ago when yogurt and Influ ads were first starting. So 150 to 200 bucks for, they said about 150 to 200,000 impressions. I forget, I mean, they told me exactly how many. I don't remember what it was, but it was in that ballpark. And then you got so many impressions on their RSS, you know, publishers that put your stuff in their RSS feeds and whatnot. But because they were growing so much faster than than advertisers were coming to them, they had tons of extra inventory uh, through the publishers. And I routinely saw six hundred to even eight hundred thousand impressions for my money of like one hundred and fifty dollars. Which Jeez. there's and these were highly targeted, so these were developer websites only. I could actually say I only want to be on your web development sites. And they had gone around to some great bloggers and gotten these bloggers on board. Because a lot of these bloggers and other publishers get disenfranchised with the Google model because they just can make more money if they go through another ad network. It's, it can be cheaper for the advertiser, and the publisher gets a greater share of the money. So it can work. And that's why I wanted to include this article. And if you're looking at advertising, it doesn't take more than a little bit of time to go and try one of these other guys out or two or three of them out and see if you can get more impressions or, or better conversion uh, rate through them for less money. Because going and spending thousands of bucks on Google AdWords is not the most fun thing. All right, link number four, CSS3 Microsoft Modern Buttons. <laughs> if you have had a burning desire to no. emulate the Metro Congratulations, style. you can make an overpadded square blue <laughs> button. Yay! <laughs> I did wonder. He said he's, this guy said he stayed up all night working on this. <laughs> I was what? a little confused by that because these buttons don't look very complex in their styling, and I inspected them a little bit, and there's, there wasn't a whole lot going on. But what, what this does allow you to do is that if you – it works on top of bit, Twitter Bootstrap – and if you like that modern web UE style that is Microsoft's Metro, which we're not supposed to call it that anymore, but Microsoft's Metro interface, you can use these style sheets to just style your website to use that, that look and feel. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I feel so. like I spent more time making the documentation than he did making the actual buttons. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, I don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It does have some, like the disabled buttons. The disabled button I thought looked kind of nice with that. It has the shadow in it. But yeah, I don't know. 
That's interesting. Yeah. Is this independent or is it like work with Bootstrap or something? Yeah, this works with Bootstrap. Oh, it does? Okay. I believe. It says it works on top of Bootstrap. So you could probably use it independently or you could just drop it into Bootstrap and boom, things are restyled. Be crazy if it didn't actually. I was I would be more concerned if it didn't work with Bootstrap. Yeah, he's on the main page it says he created it from a need, highly encouraged for sharing. It's cross browser compatible and works on top of Bootstrap. Got it. So that is CSS3 Microsoft Modern Buttons, because that's what they're now calling it. They, Microsoft was sued for using the term Metro, and so they call it Microsoft Modern Style UE, something like that. So let's get on to the last link of this episode, link number five, better test-driven development workflow via exclusive tests in Jasmine and Mocha. And I'd like to let me explain this real quick and then get your guys' opinion on what you think of this. What this guy is saying is over time, as your project grows, your test suite, the number of tests you have in it are obviously going to grow. And it becomes prohibitive to run all of the tests. It could take 20 or 30 minutes for all of them to complete. And so people start to add either fewer tests or they don't run the tests all the time. And it really just defeats the purpose of having that test suite. So what he does is he just runs part he he runs part of his test suite each time depending on what parts of his code he's changed. And there are several ways that you can do this already. You could use command line test runners so you specify a specific file or module or function to run on the command line, you can do it that way. You could use a special code editor plugin or something nifty in your code editor to know here's the files that, you know, I have open right now and so then when you do your keyboard shortcut, go run the tests that relate to these. You know, you could use something like Eclipse or whatever is built into your IDE. And what this guy does is he actually goes in and edits his test suite to, to say, these are the tests I want you to run. So all of the other tests are not ready to be run. He just goes in and, you know, I think he uses D describe and I it in Jasmine to do this. And then in Mocha, it's describe.only and it.only. So that you can say, I just want to run these. But he has to go in and edit this test suite every single time, specifically to say, these are the tests I now want you to run. That's crazy town. <laughs> <laughs> it had a pretty huge ick factor for me. I don't think I could see myself doing this. I mean, so I've used um, like auto test running uh, with uh, Cucumber stuff before. And it's pretty clunky uh, because like it looks for which files change. Right. It doesn't always know, like, it runs tests when it shouldn't, and that's not really ideal either. So, I mean, I get the pain. I just don't know if a suite every time makes a whole lot of sense. Have What about continuous integration servers? Do you mess around with that? I haven't. Um, I, we're always a tiny team, so it seems like overkill. Yeah, I've I've worked on a few projects lately that do it, and I've gotten more and more used to it just because then I don't have to worry about my machine chugging away on it. I just, you know, and you're supposed to still run the test locally, but there will be times when, eh, I don't want to run the 20 or 30 minute tests and I throw it up on continuous integration, which is also granted a bad practice, but at least then I can offload it to the, to the server to do it and let me know if something breaks and then go in and fix it. Yeah. I think the 30 minute test suite is the problem there. Yeah. Then I don't know what the real solution is to that because these it seems like any time I'm on a large project, a large-ish project that has thousands of lines of code, 
and gets a pretty big test suite. I mean, it's minutes and minutes. And then if you start doing, you know, if you start driving Selenium through that, start doing integration tests, and you're just, you're driving the cost of your test suite up huge. For sure. So that this is how this guy solves it, is he goes in specifically and edits his test suite every single time. But And he also talks about how to make sure that you don't commit the test suite in that edited form, which that's where I really decided this is not how I'd want to do it because you've got to go in there and, and every time either revert your changes when you're about to do your git commits or you know or just stash them or somehow get it out of your working directory so that you can do your pulls and pull yeah. down new code it's just super icky to do it this way but <laughs> I do like that he that he's trying something new and I, I think more than anything he surfaces this problem with huge test suites and the more that we discuss this, the greater chances that we'll find better solutions to it. So thank you for bringing the problem up. All right. And with that, we will end this episode of the Townopoly podcast. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you like what you heard, go into iTunes and leave us a glowing review. And until next time, keep hacking. <laughs>